Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. And that's because Ian Basson, the co-founder and executive director of Protect Democracy, joins me again. Ian was just recognized as a MacArthur Foundation genius for the work that Protect Democracy has been doing since it was founded in 2016 in response to the threat that Trump posed to democracy here and the spread of autocracy around the world. Now, with Trump threatening to root out the vermin, use the Justice Department to go after his enemies, to start mass deportation of immigrants, I wanted to have Ian lay out what Trump might do if he becomes president again. So let's get right to it, because we've got Ian Basson and a great one today. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stuart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. First of all, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, and congratulations on the MacArthur Award, the uh, uh, the Genius Award, I guess they call it sometimes. They go a little over the top with the branding, but uh, but but thank you. It's a it's a testament, I think, to the incredible team that I work with, who really deserve an enormous amount of credit for the work they do. Well, it's a team that you put together, and you started what in two thousand. This is, of course, uh, for Protect Democracy, and it's a team that you put together starting in two thousand sixteen. That's correct. And it was just you and another guy, right? There was a couple of us coming out of the White House Counsel's Office, you know, and, and we were talking with not just alumni of the White House Counsel's Office, but some of the senior outgoing members of the Department of Justice with a pretty much a, a simple question, which is we had, when we were in the executive branch, followed a whole bunch of rules that had been in place for decades, if not centuries, but that are not really legally binding. They're just norms. traditions. They're norms. norms. Yeah. They're norms. And the question was, what would happen if a president chose not to follow them? And so we set about trying to organize an effort outside government to 
make sure our government followed the norms of liberal democracy. Lo and behold, we're in an era in which that doesn't happen so much. 2016 is no coincidence. You were in the Obama administration and you were ending that. Did the inspiration come from this uh, before Trump got elected or what during his campaign? I mean, it started to arise during his campaign because he was talking about doing things that were just altogether different from any candidate on either the Democratic or Republican side. I, I honestly believe this to be true. Had anyone been elected from Bernie Sanders to Ted Cruz, we never would have started an organization called Protect Democracy because as different as Bernie Sanders's and Ted Cruz's views are of American politics, policy, even interpretations of the Constitution. As of 2016, I don't think either of them would have taken the oath of office with their fingers crossed behind their back. Uh, but Donald Trump was fundamentally different because he just doesn't believe in our system of government. I wonder if Cruz post-Trump is... Uh, note note he, that I did say as of 2016. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Uh, he's fallen in with this. And as the entire Republican Party virtually has, I know you have Republicans on your staff and that those are the ones that haven't gone that way. But the institutional party and the elected leadership, they've had their brains scrambled. I, I wonder to some extent, and you, you, know, you worked with some of them, so you might have insight into this. Did Trump scramble their brains or did he just reveal the degree to which their brains were scrambled? I'm not sure which. What, what happened is they, they uh, became afraid of him because they saw the first few defy him get canceled. But but what a weak, yep. what a weak character to allow the. I agree, right? They're afraid that he has such a uh, a total chokehold, master lock, whatever you want to say, on their voters that it would be politically fatal of them. They think they think to cross him, and so they're willing to sell out their oath, their country, their family name, their legacy. They saw it happen to Jeff Flake in Arizona. They saw it happen yeah. to anybody who stood up. He went after them, and uh, he won. And then everyone kind of went along with it. And we have a, a MAGA party in both houses now, more so in the House maybe, but pretty, pretty MAGA in the Senate too. I have two sort of theories about what has happened to them or, or the problem. I'm curious what you, you think of them. One is sort of a personal theory about each of them individually, and the other is a group theory. And the personal theory, and this comes from, frankly, it comes from a conversation I had with Bob Corker after he stepped down, which is that they view Trump as incompetent and embarrassing and unethical and idiotic and ridiculous, mm -hmm. but they don't view him as dangerous. They cannot imagine that someone with all of those flaws that Trump does have could possibly take down the American Republic. Oh, no, boy, that's that's uh, so sad. It's like every predicate to it was he's dangerous. Right. Everything you said, yeah. well, they think of him as incompetent and stupid. And blah, blah. He's very, very dangerous, obviously. And what I want to talk to you about today is. If he does win, what levers will he pull? What will he do? How will he be dangerous? How will he change this government so that it is an authoritarian government? And we talked right at the top about norms, and there's a lot of norms that aren't laws, and there's a lot of norms that he can get rid of and exploit, right? Yeah, and this is what I don't understand why they can't see what is so apparently obvious to you and me and to so many others in mainstream America, which is that the first thing I think you have to accept is that when Trump ran in 2016, there was a lot of, he would, he would make these, what seemed at the time to be these wild outlandish, ridiculous sort of promises or threats, whatever you want to call them, that People couldn't figure out, do you take them literally? Do you take them seriously? Do you take them figuratively? So he'd say, we're going to build a wall. We're going to ban Muslims. Right. Mm -hmm. And people would say, well, what is, is he serious about that? And here's right. the thing he did and tried to do each of those things. So logically, you have to assume that when he says, I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to ban Muslims, and then he does it, that this time, if he says, I'm going to prosecute my political opponents right. just because they are my opponents, 
or I'm going to build camps in this country and round up people by the millions and put them into camps. I think if you use experience as any sort of guide, you have to assume that he is going to try to do that. So number one, take his words absolutely seriously about what he intends to do. And then the second thing we learned is he tried to do many of these extreme things before. And in, in a lot of cases, he was thwarted by checks and balances, in particular by people within his own administration who refused to carry out unlawful or unethical or un-American orders or simply tried to have the bureaucracy follow the proper procedures, right? And, and those people will not be populating. Not be there. Yeah, That's right, because he has learned he has learned, you know, John Dean, the, the famous counsel to Richard Nixon, who then turned on Nixon and you know, testified in the Watergate hearings against Nixon. He said to me early in Trump's term, he said, Nixon came into the presidency with a vast amount of government experience. He had been the governor of California. He had been the vice mm-hmm. president. He understood bureaucracy. And yet he ran for governor. Right. That's right. That's right. He ran. Uh, he said. So who gets um, the genius award now? That's right. I mean, I, you can take it. You can have it. Um, he, uh, said, Nixon didn't know how the president. He'd been the vice worked. president. He had been the vice. <laughs> he did right. He yeah. the vice president. Yeah. But he didn't know how it worked at first. But he learned it. He learned it. And he said, and he got progressively. Dean said, I watched up close. He got progressively more dangerous as he learned how the bureaucracy worked. Trump will do the same thing. And Trump learned over his first term how the bureaucracy works. And he's now figured out, I can't have these people who are confirmed by the Senate because they're going to be responsive to the Senate or responsive to their oath. I need people. And he said this during his first term. He said, I like acting people. They're more loyal to me, right? So he's now got a plan. Toward the end, it was all acting, acting, acting. People he put in who didn't have to be confirmed. And that's that's what he's going to do. He's going to populate his administration with cronies. That's right. And and fill it with people who will simply do his bidding, whatever it is, even if that were, you know, as we said before, would violate norms, even potentially would violate laws, because who prosecutes the laws? He does. So if he tells someone to do something that violates a federal law, well, he can also tell his Department of Justice not to prosecute them. So now we've got a lawless administration. I uh, On Jen Rubin's podcast, which was very good, uh, you said something about Victor Orban that I thought was very interesting, which is Orban, you know, how he became more an autocrat. And part of it was with the media and how he treated the media and how he took away government ads and threatened them. And you said that Trump seemed to be learning from that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a there's a professor at Princeton, Kim Lane Shapley, who spent about a decade in Hungary uh, while Orban's rise and takeover of government took place. And she studied it very closely and warned us early on when we started Protect Democracy back in 2017 to watch for the weaponization of the regulatory state to go punish critics of the president. So because this is what Orban did. So there was a robust independent media sector in Hungary before Orban's second term. Now, another interesting parallel, Orban had been prime minister of Hungary back in 1998 through you know early 2000s. He lost. <laughs> when he lost, you know what he said? He said it was fraud. <laughs> he blamed fraud. Wasn't, mm-hmm. but he blamed fraud. And sure. then he spent the years before he came back into power organizing what he called quote unquote, a central political force field, although he said in Hungarian, I don't know the Hungarian, that's the English, a central political force field around himself to allow him or his allies to rule for 15 or 20 years. He's now won one, quote unquote, four elections. And one of the ways he did that was he used the regulatory state in Hungary to go after any media outlets that were critical of him. He would investigate them. He would audit their finances. He barred the government from advertising with them and ordered the government to advertise only with their rivals in the marketplace. And the government spent a lot of money on advertising. So this this created an imbalance in the marketplace where these independent media outlets were really losing their ability to compete in the capitalist market system. Their market value dropped. And then as their market value dropped, all of a sudden, an investor would swoop in and offer to buy these media properties at a price well above what they were worth in the marketplace. And the owners thought, gee, that's a pretty good deal. We don't see how we're going to get back to profitability given the the regulatory thumb that's come down on us. We should sell. It's a great deal. 
So they would sell the property. And as soon as they would sell it, it would become clear that the new investors were actually allies of the Orban Fidesz government. The government would lift the regulatory thumb. So all of a sudden, all the things that were suppressing the price and, and value of that property would go away. The, the value would go up. The investors would make a killing. And then they would fire all the independent journalists and, and hire a bunch of cheerleaders for the regime. And in that way, Orban converted a what had been a fairly independent and open and free Hungarian press into a press that were just propagandists for him, which then, of course, stacked the, the deck every time he ran for re-election because now the media was totally on his side. And Kim warned us that this would happen in the United States. And what did Trump promise during his campaign in 2016 when he didn't like CNN's coverage? He said, if CNN doesn't change its coverage, I'm going to block the merger of CNN's parent company's merger, Time Warner and AT&T. And lo and behold, when he comes into office, what does DOJ do? It tries to block that merger. And we saw over and over again, Trump used the regulatory state just as Orban did to try to go after his critics. He didn't like the Washington Post coverage. So Jeff Bezos, the owner of the Washington Post, also owns Amazon. So what did Trump do? He ordered the Postmaster General to raise shipping rates on Amazon to try to pressure Bezos into changing the editorial line of the Washington Post. It was straight out of the authoritarian playbook. So that's something we can expect. What what else can we expect? I mean, what's, what is a deep state? What does uh, Trump consider the deep state? And what does that portend for a second term if we see one? We got to go back a little bit in history here, right? To let's go back to 19th century America, where one, you have a much less complicated, more rural and agrarian society. You have a smaller federal government, uh, although it's mostly populated by patronage, right? A president mm -hmm. gets elected and fills the ranks of the federal government with all of their friends and supporters. And so, you know, you support the president, president wins, you get to, you know, run the post office, right? You get to fill the post office with your employees and everyone gets paid. But as the, you know, as we enter the 20th century and as we become a much more complicated modern society, two things happen. One, we realize, you know, we actually could use some expertise because these tornadoes keep coming through and tearing up Tennessee and Nebraska and Kansas and Kentucky. And it would really be helpful if we didn't have just some patron of the president who was in charge of predicting when the tornadoes would arrive, but we actually had a meteorologist who knew something about this. So you create a expert group of people who understand things like meteorology and when tornadoes are going to come. And you say, you know what, we're going to create a expert class of the civil service that the whoever wins the presidency, they don't get to go and put their brother-in-law in there because their brother-in-law isn't a meteorologist. And we want a meteorologist to tell the people in Kansas when the tornadoes come. So you create an expert civil service and you protect it to some degree from whoever comes into office so that we've got an, an expert government that can help the American people survive tornadoes. And we do that in a whole bunch of spheres and sectors, the people who make sure that our food is safe, right? We don't want the president's sister-in-law who happens to be, you know, an entertainment lawyer telling us whether our meat is safe. We want someone who understands meat safety. And so we create the civil service and now Trump and Steve Bannon have tried to decry it as the so-called deep state. But it's not the deep state. It's the experts who help us remain safe. And we put in all these protections at the beginning of the 20th century to make sure that presidents can't just fire all those people and put in all their friends and allies and endanger our safety and our security. And they have gone to calling that the deep state and they have threatened to replace them all with political cronies. And I, I can't underscore how dangerous that would be for those people who live either in the plains of tornadoes or those people who eat meat uh, or milk or any of those things. Or, or, or anything. Medicine. Medicine, yeah. Or anything. That's right. And, and what is, will his, would his ability to do that be? So one of the things that Trump did at the very end of his first term was he signed an executive order that at least attempted to reclassify a large swath of civil servants, those people who stay in office regardless of who the president is, and tried to convert them all to political appointees. So he would be allowed to fire more easily a whole bunch of these sort of expert civil servants and replace them with people that are loyal to him. Because as we noted earlier, these expert civil servants oftentimes are a bulwark against authoritarianism. If you look around the world, oftentimes the bureaucracy, because they are committed to their, their area of expertise, 
their oath of office, a set of protocols for how to do things. They stand there in the way of an autocrat coming to office and saying, I don't care about any of that, just do what I say, even if what they say might be really not good for the public interest of the American people. That's why when Recep Erdogan in Turkey wanted to consolidate power, what did he do? He fired vast swaths of the civil service to put in loyalists. And, and Trump wants to follow that playbook. So he tried to do this at the very end of his administration. When Biden was elected, Biden rescinded that executive order. But Trump is getting ready to do it again. And so what he would do if he, and he, again, we got to take him at his word, right? Because it's what he promises to do. He would reclassify a huge swath of the experts who keep us safe, fire them, replace them with people whose sole loyalty is to him personally, which creates two problems. One, nobody's inspecting the medicine and the milk and the meat or, or protecting our nuclear weapons or nuclear plants that went over disaster. And two, it means everybody in government will simply do what he says, even if it is not in the public interest, and frankly, even if it is not legal. Uh, Jeffrey Clark, I think when Trump was talking to him during that transition period before January 6th, the election January 6th, brought up the Insurrection Act. And it uh, feels like people like Jeffrey Clark might be in this administration, um, even if he gets convicted and Trump gets convicted. But what is that? What is the Insurrection Act? Does that mean that means we can put troops out in the street to put down riots, right? Or put down demonstrations or That's right. is There's this a danger? It, it is indeed. So, so generally speaking, we don't use the American military to police our own citizens, right? Uh, in fact, there are, there are a lot of significant restrictions making sure that we're not deploying the military against the American people or, or domestically within the United States. But there are some limited exceptions. Um, and the Insurrection Act is one of them that in situations of extreme civil unrest allows the president some leeway to use military assets and resources to sort of keep the peace. The problem, fund, and, and Trump has was, was on the verge of using it in his last term, he's threatened, we, we're, at least it's been reported that um, this group, the Project 2025 Project, which is a project run by the Heritage Institute to prepare for a second Trump administration, right, uh, right. has talked about the possibility of invoking the Insurrection Act if there are, again, as there were in 2017, protests against Trump's victory. Now, remember, 2017, you had the Women's March a week or so after Trump was inaugurated, peaceful marches around the country in the great American tradition of petitioning your government for redress of grievances. And the notion that the president would use military assets against that is terrifying and un-American. But, but here's the fundamental thing, which is, as we both know, in order to give a, a government, the president or anyone else, the ability to deal with a range of unpredictable scenarios, any society, the United States included, has to pass laws that give some degree of discretion to the president to act in an emergency. So there is a swath of emergency powers that Congress has delegated to the president. But the expectation always is, because you have to give the president somewhat wide berth because you don't know exactly what the scenario will be, that whoever is in that office is going to use these powers carefully mm. in the American interest. There's, in a, there's the rub. There's the rub, right? The assumption is that whoever's in the presidency is going to be a responsible individual. It's not contemplated that you would have someone in there who is a narcissistic aspiring dictator. And if you combine a narcissistic aspiring dictator whose only interest is self-gratification and self-empowerment, with some of the statutes that are laying about like loaded guns, you get a really combustible scenario. And the Insurrection Act is just one of the array of federal laws that an abusive, tyrannical president could warp and twist and use in ways that would be horrifying to most Americans. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ian Bassett. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, 
Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. See for Smart Energy. Stay focused. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are, with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. We're back with Ian Bassett. How, how will um, he deal in foreign policy in terms of, um, you know, he says he uh, solved the Ukraine-Russian conflict in one day. Yeah, he's got an easy solution, fold. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that that's his solution, right? And he, you know, again, we take him at his word, right? What is he, what has he talked about doing? What does he threatened to do? What he doesn't he, say fold, but he says I'd solve it in one day, and that means fold. I mean, he has to. Fold, yeah. right. he, doesn't, he doesn't fundamentally believe in NATO. He fundamentally believes in Vladimir Putin. And so I think it is logical to assume that his solution would simply be to drop support for Ukraine, drop support and potentially withdraw, I think likely withdraw the United States from NATO. And then Putin consolidates his hold over Ukraine and not only over Ukraine, but probably sees that as an invitation to, re- you know, Putin has wanted to rebuild the Soviet empire. And so Putin then goes into the Baltics and our allies in Europe realize that unlike uh, in World War One and World War Two, the U.S. is not coming to their aid anymore. Boy, if if we did that, anyone in the Baltics, people would be shocked. <laughs> well, and, and here's what I find so wild about it. Right? Here's what I find so wild about it from just sort of like a patriotic American standpoint, which is we revere the greatest generation. We revere the fact that the United States defended the world from fascism successfully that we were a member of the allied powers that stood on the side of freedom and democracy against the Axis powers who stood on the side of fascism and authoritarianism. And what Donald Trump is essentially proposing to do is to switch our side from the allied side to the Axis side. His allies, Donald Trump's allies, are Vladimir Putin, not the leaders of the free world. And I, I, I don't say this lightly, but I also believe it to be true. I think if Donald Trump were to return to power, we would essentially be replaying the 20th century and the 21st just with the United States on the other side. Wow. That's, uh, that's scary. Let's talk about uh, immigration and uh, xenophobia. Uh, right now, our immigration system is kind of broken. We have people coming in with asylum and they get a number and said you're up in 10 years, you know, and these are people legitimately seeking asylum from countries where there's violence and they need to come, but we just have a broken system. And I, you know, I think this is going to be an issue in the campaign, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure we have a winning argument on it other than, we need immigrants. We need them to fill jobs. This is our tradition. This is, you know, uh, in, in this country, we're all immigrants. What do you see about if, if they're putting Stephen Miller back in, uh, a return to cruelty is the point? I mean, look, nobody has been able to solve the crisis of immigration policy or the crisis at the southern border. Because as you know, we have people who are desperately fleeing poverty and crime, trying to come to the beacon of liberty of the United States, but our system isn't working. And Donald Trump was not able to solve the problem. Uh, Joe Biden is not able to solve the problem. It is not a problem that can be easily solved by a president who promises, I alone can fix it. So the first thing is, you know, anyone who tells you that they can solve this is lying to you. We had, and you were in Congress, we had 
some efforts that could have potentially succeeded at a comprehensive immigration reform. 2013, we passed it with 68 votes in the Senate. That's right. And and even prior to that, it almost, right, it almost passed under Obama. It almost passed under Bush. Um, and I thought something interesting that George Bush wrote in his memoir after leaving the presidency decision points, he, he blamed the gerrymandering problem for why immigration couldn't pass. And, and that was true in 2013 when the House was so gerrymandered that there was just no incentive for people to come to a reasonable uh, compromise on it. So one, if we're going to ultimately solve this problem, it's going to have to be through a compromise. Well, what was he saying that that uh, they were gerrymandered so that only, if you won the Republican primary, then you were definitely going to win? That's right. So, so Bush's argument, right, was that um, in these House districts on the Republican side, and I think he was in particular talking about on the Republican side, if they were to agree to the kind of compromise that it takes to pass major legislation like that, that the Senate, when you were in it, agreed with 68 votes to pass, that they were going to get primaried from their right by someone who would be uncompromising. And because they would lose their seat, they themselves then became unwilling to compromise. And so you couldn't actually create compromise legislation because the incentive was to not compromise. And that made it impossible to solve a complicated problem that required some degree of bipartisan cooperation. So, so Bush squarely laid the blame for the failure of immigration reform under his administration at the feet of gerrymandering. And I think when you guys passed it in 2013, the same dynamic caused it ultimately to fail. There was one election that uh, that really did it in 2010, which was Eric Kanner uh, losing his election. Do you remember that one? He lost, right. He lost his primary, right, to an, to an insurgent, unknown candidate. And that yeah. was after we had passed our bill, and that was the last time. And that scared anybody else in the party. Yeah, the, the House was going to, uh, but that was a big deal. And that was a lot of talk radio influenced that. Yeah. And, that, and so I think structurally that helps explain a little bit about why we're in this predicament where we can't actually reach some sort of compromise solution. But you also asked about Stephen Miller. And I think one thing that doesn't help the dynamic at all is simply inflaming the issue with hyper cruel and emotionally charged xenophobia and hatred. That's just not only is it unhelpful, it's un-American. And whatever solution we're going to come up with, most Americans are decent people. Most Americans are compassionate people. Most Americans, even if they are deeply concerned and upset about the flood of people coming into the country through non-normal legal channels, they still don't want mothers ripped away from their children. That is just not something that decent people would ever want. The separation of the kids from the family has got to be the sickest, one of the sickest things they, they, they did. And it's I'm not absolutely. sure they're not going to do it again. I think they, they likely are. And this is where this, they likely are. And this is where the structural problem of gerrymandering and the problem of, well, wait a minute, if most Americans are not mean, cruel, vicious people, why is a, a president planning to do something and potentially going to do it again that most Americans wouldn't want? And this is the pro- this is the gerrymandering problem and the problem of how we have structured our electoral system to allow for minority factions on the extremes to have outsized control over who gets elected to office. And isn't that a function of the Supreme Court deciding that they can't rule on partisan gerrymandering. A hundred percent, and 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 it's you know it's, explain it's that for a second. So let's stipulate that over the course of American history, both parties have engaged in gerrymandering. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Demo- the Democrats and, have done in the past, and still the do. The Republicans have done it. and still and still do. Right. And the the fundamental problem is that if one party does it then the other party is put in a very difficult position of saying, well, we don't, and now I'm going to talk about the modern era, the current era, because right now you have Republicans doing it far more than Democrats doing. Republicans have uh, gerrymandered themselves into a lock 
on control in a number of states, Wisconsin, Wisconsin being one, amazing. about to Ohio. do it in North Carolina, Ohio, where the, the population of the state is split somewhere roughly down the middle. You know, in a place like Wisconsin, it's pretty 50-50, maybe in Ohio, maybe it's like 52, 48, 53, 47. And yet the makeup of their, their legislatures is almost supermajority, if not supermajority on one side. So the way they have drawn the districts have allowed them, and in Wisconsin, in one election, they actually won a minority of the popular votes and got almost a supermajority of the seats. So they've, they've rigged the system to allow them to control the government, even if they don't command a majority of public support. And in a situation like that, the Democrats are then put in a position of saying, well, we don't like gerrymandering. We think it is a bad way to govern. We'd like to abandon it and have independent redistricting commissions kind of draw fair uh, district yeah. lines. Yeah, but if we do that, that's right. So should we do it? But if we do that in the states where we could potentially gerrymander, then we will essentially be ceding this weapon to the other side to use, and we won't be counterbalancing it at all. And so you get people, you know, Democrats in states like New York going, well, if the Republicans are going to gerrymander Wisconsin or North Carolina and inflate their number of seats in Congress unfairly, the only thing we can do to try to level the playing field is to use the states we have control to inflate our number of seats. And so we'll do that, for example, in a state like New York uh, or Nevada. Well, what was funny in New York is that the state legislature overdid it and the New York State the Supreme Court, Court struck them down, struck That's them right. down, and uh, screwed that up, and so that backfired in New York, which is so, hilarious I mean, you look at in a way. Right, you look at this situation. Right, well, at least right, you had a, a principal state Supreme Court in New York, <laughs> Court of Appeals in New York. But you, you think you know what this is like? It would be as if um, one soccer team said, "We're just, instead of just kicking the ball, uh, we're just going to elbow everybody. We're going to knock them over. We're going to headbutt the other team." And there was no ref on the playing field. So then the team said, well, I guess we're going to get clobbered. We better do the same thing. So now instead of a soccer game, you just have a brawl. Well, what's missing is a referee. That's why you don't have that happen in a soccer match. You need a referee. Well, who's the referee in this situation? The courts. So this is getting back to your original question. The Supreme Court should be the referee here to make sure that the parties play fair and square because the parties are not going to do that themselves because they don't have an incentive to do that. So the Supreme Court essentially should be the referee. And you know who said the Supreme Court should be the referee? Remember, you were there in the hearings when John Roberts said, we're the umpires. That's what we do. Well, they, they've just abdicated their job as umpire when it comes to gerrymandering. It's as if the two sides you know, we're in this battle over gerrymandering and John Roberts in his you know, umpire uniform said, you know what, I'm going to quit and go play golf. He just left. They issued a decision that said that it is not the Supreme Court's job and not the job of the federal judiciary to umpire or referee gerrymandering claims that one party has rigged the system in their partisan favor. So first off, that's just a total abdication. It's a bad reading of the Constitution. It's a terrible consequence for the country. But here's the absurdity of it. One of the reasons they gave is they said, well, that would just require courts to make these incredibly difficult decisions and micromanage how these district lines are drawn. And we should really leave that to the political branches. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> they also allowed state Supreme Courts to weigh in on this. So now what has happened is you're getting all these challenges to gerry partisan gerrymandering that are making their way through the state court system up to state Supreme Courts. And then the U.S. Supreme Court is having to weigh in on those. So the Supreme Court said, we want to get out of this and let the political branches do it. But it's all getting litigated through state Supreme Court. And it's getting litigated also on racial gerrymandering claims under the Voting Rights Act. So you got all these court decisions weighing in anyway. So the thing that the courts, that the, the John Roberts and Supreme Court were trying to avoid, of courts kind of micromanaging this, is exactly the world that we're in anyway. It's the state courts that are, are basically judging that. And the Supreme Court is refusing to take the partisan gerrymandering. They are taking the racial ones. Which, of course, is a little bit of a, a, you know, a, a charade because it's not hard, given the polarized dynamics of how people vote, to do a partisan gerrymander, by which we mean to try to 
artificially deflate the power of, say, the Democratic Party by artificially you know, deflating the race. Yeah, right. yeah. And then those and those can get litigated in federal court under the Voting Rights Act. So the notion that the Supreme Court was going to get out of this business has failed. They're in the business. So just do the job. Just do the job. So how much um, is this all going to be? And I know the answer to this, I think, uh, accompanied by disinformation. In other words, I mean, that's that's what we live in now. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that this makes me think about as you as you talk about the electoral systems, as you talk about some of the cruel ways that the Trump administration, both the first one and and the threatened second one, what they might do to divide communities and now get into disinformation is you have been walking through and maybe Al, you did this intentionally, you've been walking through the playbook of how autocrats dismantle democracies in the 21st century. Because if you look around the world, from Venezuela to Hungary, from Turkey to Brazil, all these modern authoritarian movements, and they are rising in the 21st century, we're living through a resurgence of authoritarianism. Yeah, let me ask you about that. What is the trend? I mean, it is alarming, right? Yeah. If you So if you, you look at political historians who study the history of different types of political systems, there's a general consensus that since its modern advent, democracy has risen and fallen in a series of waves, right? So in the early 19th century, you get kind of an early wave of imperfect democracies, France, the United States, elsewhere. And it seems like democracy is rising, and then it goes backwards, right? Napoleon, et cetera. Then after World War II, you get a second wave of democracy as the sort of European colonial imperial powers pull back and you get freedom initially and democracy initially in a lot of the formerly colonized nations. And you get sort of a birth of democracy there. And then that crashes as some of those nations turn autocratic after their, their nascent democracies fail. And then in the last quarter of the 20th century, you get the biggest and widest spread of democracy yet. And it seems like, as, as Frank Fukuyama famously said, it's the end of history. And that's the end of the Cold War. The end of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall falls, and that's it. The third wave is going to be the last wave, and democracy will simply be the only game in town. Phew. But then, surprisingly, phew, but then, oops, right? Sort of like the last scene of the horror movie where you thought the monster was dead, and then, uh uh-oh, nope, there it is in the backseat of the car. All of a sudden, in the early aughts, democracy wobbles. And you start to see in places like we've talked about, Hungary, Poland, Venezuela, you start to see these democracies that seem to be consolidating wobble and give way to these new modern authoritarian movements. Even Russia had a moment that... uh... Even a brief, brief though it was, right, Russia had this brief moment where it was dabbling in the idea of democracy that crashed very quickly. And so now you get these authoritarian, you know, and China went through a period of reform, right, that she has now really reversed and created a one-man dictatorship. Well, he's a real, he's, he's like a real communist. I mean, in other words, he, he's not uh, as big in a market economy as his predecessor, right? He's Right. You had, you, had, you had a whole bunch of reforms. In, you, had, you had market capitalist reforms in yes. China that we thought might proceed more liberal democratic reforms. But but the other thing that Xi has done, right, is that China had built a whole bunch of internal protections against the sort of one-man rule that Mao had embodied that had done such incredible harm to the country, and she has dismantled a lot of those. So, so you, you see across the world these kind of authoritarian movements, and they do the same things kind of everywhere. They politicize independent institutions like the civil service. That's where you and I started our conversation. They spread disinformation, as you just alluded to. They aggrandize executive power and undermine checks and balances. They quash dissent through quashing independent media. We've talked about that. They go after vulnerable communities like immigrants. We've talked about that. They corrupt elections right, through rigging systems. We've talked a little about that. And the one thing we haven't talked about yet, and I imagine we might get to, is the last part of the authoritarian playbook, they incite violence. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, invoking the Insurrection Act. Right, but the Insurrection Act would use government forces. And what a lot of these autocrats do is they incite and wink, wink, nod, nod to almost private paramilitaries, right? Stand back and stand by is what Donald Trump said during that famous presidential debate. And that was to the Oath Keepers or? That was to the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, right? These two, right, to the Proud Boys. 
I think specifically in the debate, it was to the Proud Boys, uh, right? But these are non-governmental entities. These are private, essentially, militia groups. And what these autocrats do is they use these private militias as thugs. Uh, Mubarak did this in Tahrir Square, right? When, Tahrir, when the protesters in Tahrir Square were trying to dislodge the 30-year dictator, Mubarak unleashed private militias to go in and beat the protesters. Assad did this in Syria when the Syrian people were organizing peacefully for an end to their tyrannical regime, it was not the Syrian government that came after them. It was these private thugs that Assad essentially winked at and said, you you do it. And and Trump did that as well with the Proud Boys, with the Oath Keepers. That was January 6th, right? It was, right. A pri- it was unleashing private violence. And so I think, you know, I said we might get to it, and here we are. The last thing that we need to really fear in another Trump term is an increase in that sort of violence uh, that we saw on January 6th. You're talking like brown shirts. Goose steppers. So uh, we got to prevent this from happening. Yeah. And that is by winning uh, an election, right? Yeah, there's no other way around it, right? Which is, well, we could talk. uh, There are some interesting arguments percolating through the courts about uh, you know Trump's eligibility, but I think putting those aside because I think it's unlikely. Fourteenth Amendment succeed. Yeah, I think important yeah. important provision of the Constitution probably not gonna you know be the thing that saves the country, but but it is an important provision of the Constitution. We shouldn't we shouldn't read it out of the Constitution. But ultimately, the only thing that can save democracy is democracy itself. And if we as a country, knowing full well what Trump is promising to do, uh, overwhelmingly vote for it. You know, that's the situation in a place like India, right? So there are some countries in which um, these autocratic movements have come to power, even though they don't command majority support. So if you look at a place like Poland, the Law and Justice Party, that and we should actually talk for a minute about Poland because it's a really interesting story and a, and a good news story about what happened there. But yes. when the Law and Justice, the sort of illiberal nationalist authoritarian, curious party in Poland first came to power, it was on plurality support. They didn't have majority support. And back in 2017, our organization organized a summit on democracy where we invited people from other countries who had been battling these autocratic movements to come and offer us advice in the United States as we were getting ready to enter this phase. And an opposition minister from Poland, Agnieszka Pomaska, we asked her, what's your advice for Americans? You've been battling this for a long time. And and I'll never forget what she said. She said, don't let the pro-democracy coalition fracture. That was what they had learned in Poland, is when the people who believed in democracy infought with each other and fractured and split, it created an opening for the autocratic party to come to power even without majority support. And so how do we stop all of the stuff that you and I have been talking about in the last 40 minutes from coming to pass? We don't let the pro-democracy coalition fracture. Donald Trump at this point in time is historically unpopular. In every election that he has run in, he has lost the popular vote. In every election in which Trumpism, even if Trump himself has been on the ballot, even if he wasn't, it's gotten beaten badly. And that's because we have in this country a 55, if not 60% anti-MAGA, anti-authoritarianism majority. The problem is it fractures in elections. And the threat I think next year in 2024, is that all of these third party candidates yep. and movements, whether you're talking about Cornell West or Robert Kennedy Jr. or no labels and whoever they put up, um, they threaten to. Jill fracture. Stein is that Jill, again. Jill Stein. And why? They threat, that's right. That's, and why? Why? They, these movements threaten to fracture the pro democracy coalition, and they are how we could end up with the Polish situation of an authoritarian government coming to power and being very difficult to dislodge uh, and not having majority support. <sighs> okay. Well, we the, the, in other words, we have to stick together and not fracture. Yeah, that's right. We, 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 we hang together or we hang separately, as, as has been famously said. Well, uh, thanks, Ian. Uh, we need your leadership on this to keep us uh, on, on track and keep us unified, okay? This is a this is let's let's not end on a depression note. Let's end on an optimistic call to action, which is 
which is we have to stick together because no matter what our policy or political differences may be, the most important thing is that we maintain a peaceful democratic system for resolving them. If we don't have that, if we don't have that, then we can never self-correct. We can never choose a different direction because once someone like a Donald Trump, after everything he's promised comes into power, I fear we're not going to have a free and fair election again. And the great thing about American democracy is generally we make mistakes, we can fix them. We disagree, we can choose one direction. And then if that doesn't work, we can choose another direction. Ending that, ending the American experiment will be the gravest threat we face. And so we've got to put our differences aside, link arms. In some cases, maybe hold our noses. I know there are people out there who may not want to vote for, for the sitting president, for example, who frankly I think has done a phenomenal job. But the stakes are simply too high. We need to unite in defense of the American experiment and see it through to its 250th birthday. There you go. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Al. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.